All right, now we're in chapter 2, Genesis 2, verses 15 to 25. Genesis 2, 15. 2, 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Verse 15, God takes the man, that is Adam. Notice it's just the man. The woman has not yet been created. She's created in verses 18 to 25. All these events are taking place from chapter 2, verse 4 to 225. This is on the sixth day of creation. And God initiates. So God knows what he's doing. He has his intentions in mind. And he's going to directly... uh, have the man brought into the garden. God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Man could not resist. Man had to do, Adam had to do whatever God wanted him to do. He took him and put him where he needed to be. No resistance. No resistance possible. Then, the two purposes for the man in the garden, to cultivate it and keep it to cultivate or to work it, and to keep it or to guard it. To work and to guard it. Or we might also say uh, to provide for himself and his wife and family, and also to protect. To provide and to protect. These are two basic duties that Adam had, but also all men had. And then the third one is in verses 16 to 17, The Lord God commanded the man. God gave Adam a commandment, which means God taught him something. And what he taught him, he was supposed to teach to Eve and to everyone else. He commanded. So Adam is to be a provider, a protector, and a pastor. A pastor to himself and to others to teach them the will of God. This is also the duty of every man. Every man ought to work. He ought to guard and protect what is his own and also to teach properly his wife and his posterity the things of God. So, then we also see in verses 16 to 17 this commandment. It doesn't say commandment, but it does say he commanded the man. Therefore, we can call it a commandment, right? Right? This is the first and only commandment God gave Adam. The first and only commandment. This is known as the covenant of works. Covenant of works. If Adam obeyed God in this way, then by his works, he would have obtained eternal life. By his own works, he would have obtained or sustained his life to eternal life by partaking of the tree of life and also just just not having the presence of sin and the curse that comes upon one because of the presence of sin and the curse of death. That's what would would have been the case with Adam if he had not sinned. So that's why it's known as the covenant of works. After he sinned, then the only way to be saved is by grace, 
And there is also another covenant known as the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is the only means of salvation. It is first uh, announced or intimated at chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The covenant of grace announced here in 3.15 and in many other places of the Old Testament essentially is faith in Christ. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. This is the only means of salvation, to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by any human works whatsoever. There's only these two basic ways in which God has covenanted with us. That is, by works, when he first created Adam, and then by grace. These are the only two. Now, the covenant of grace and the way that that unfolds throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament is different, and it has different aspects. That's why there's the Noahic covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and then the New Covenant. There are different uh, forms of it, manifestations of it, but there is only one means, that is, the means of God's grace poured out to us by which we put our faith in Christ for our salvation. Now let's see what it is. Examine verse 16. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now that first part is the blessing. Whenever a covenant is made, throughout the Old Testament, whenever a covenant is made, there is a blessing for obedience and there is a curse for disobedience. The blessing. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. From what God had provided, He provided in abundance to them everything that they could imagine to, to see, everything that they could imagine to, um, to hear, to eat, to enjoy. In every way, He gave it to them and He says, You may eat freely, eat generously, eat without restraint. You can have any tree, any of these trees all around you, to look at and to partake of, you may eat of them as you please. He's showing his great grace to them. He provides for what he created. But then there is a prohibition. Verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God announcing this commandment and announcing the name of that tree to Adam. Correct? Adam did not name it. God announced the name of it to Adam. And also in chapter 2, verse 9, Moses, by the Holy Spirit, tells us the name of the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was not Moses' name for it. It was not Adam's name for it. It was no human's name for it. It was God's name for it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the significance of that. All of the events that are here described in chapters 2 and 3 and throughout the Bible do not happen haphazardly. They do not happen 
because we have a fickle and capricious deity who doesn't know what he's doing and has to think of second and third and fourth uh, contingencies on what man might do. That's not the way the Bible describes God. God is sovereign in everything he does. He is in control of everything he does. He does not lose control at all. So then, what is the penalty? The prohibition is you shall not eat, but the penalty is in the day or when, when you eat from it, you shall surely die. There would be certain death, unmistakable death. It will happen, is the point. God, in other words, has made it very clear that there is the way of life and the way of death. There are no other ways to look at it. There's no middle ground. There's no hedging. There's either the way of life or there is the way of death. Life for obedience, death for disobedience. And it is certain. When God announces His Word here and in many other occasions throughout the Bible, He makes it absolutely clear what He's talking about. He tells us what He's talking about. In the Ten Commandments, He tells us what He's talking about. In the first two, or the two greatest commandments, He tells us what He's talking about. Yes, upon further reflection, we need more clarification, but at least we know He's not talking about uh, absurd and bizarre kinds of things. We know what He's talking about. Essentially, we understand the commandments. That's the nature of this commandment, too. He makes it absolutely clear what His will is. This is important to remember when we study chapter 3, because in chapter 3, the devil, the serpent who is the devil, he will bring confusion into God's clarity. What God made evident, the devil will cloud. He's going to put mud over everything that God made very clear to the people, to Adam and to Eve. Now the creation of Eve, verses 18 to 25. Remember, we're on the sixth day. The sequence of events, though it was not told to us from chapter 1, on the sixth day, God created the man, then He created the animals, and then He created the woman. Why did He do it in that sequence? This paragraph tells us why. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 18. 
Not good for the man to be alone. Everything God has created has been good, but the state in which man was all alone was not good up to that point. So he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him. The helper for the man was not to be a cow or a bull, was not to be a goat or a sheep. It was not supposed to be a dog or a cat. The helper suitable for man was to be a woman. But God wanted, not only for Adam's sake, but also for our sake, to highlight that point. That's why he brings all the animals before the man for the man to come to a realization without any sin, without any cloudy thoughts, without any sin and evil in his mind, to know, okay, none of these creatures correspond to me. I cannot cohabit with any of these. I cannot have a lifelong uh, partnership uh, and companionship with any of these. I need one who corresponds to me. And that's what he did in verse, verses 19 and 20. He showed Adam that he could not. He could not. Verse 19, first. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed. I inserted this past perfect had formed form of the verb because I believe it is valid and valid in context, but also legitimate for the Hebrew verb here to be rendered that way. It could be rendered formed or had formed, that God did this. If it is formed, um, then uh, it would be the sequence um, Adam, the animals, and Eve. Or if it is had formed, it could be animals, Adam, and Eve. That could be the sequence. So in, it, in either case, there is no contradiction in reference to the, the, the passage here. And I also alert you to the fact that um, there are uh, instances outside of the Bible where in Semitic verbs that the verbal form could be rendered as a past tense simply formed or past perfect had formed. That is possible, and it happens in other literature outside of the Bible, so it could well have happened here. And we could have, as the proper sequence, the creation of the animals, the creation of Adam, and then the animals are brought to Adam, and then Eve is created after Adam realizes the animals are unsuitable to him. Then, verse 19, the purpose, also it says, to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. To see what he would call them. When he calls them by a name, the name signifies their nature. And by naming them, he would have reiterated to himself that they are unsuitable for his nature. So he names them all. This also is evidence of his intelligence, yeah. that he was not mute and he didn't moan and groan and grunt in order to ma manage his way, right. as is depicted by evolutionists. That's not what happened. He actually spoke, he actually knew he had great intelligence. Great intelligence. Then, uh, verse 20, And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. 
He gave names to all of them. They were all brought before him. We might, might ask, and skeptics ask, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, by a miracle. We're, we're dealing with the God of miracles. So the animals would have come by miracles as well. But we should also note that the animals were not afraid of man right. at this point. Remember, it's only after the flood that it says that the fear of you will be in the animals. The fear of you would be in the animals. And so the birds of the sky, for example, normally they want to fly here and there, but if, he, if God wanted to call them before Adam, he could call them to come right before Adam and for Adam to give them names. So there is the lack of the fear of the animals toward man and man towards them, but also the, the uh, miraculous power of God bringing some of these animals, especially right before Adam, which they normally would not be mixing and mingling and being in the proximity of the man. Verse 20 is the first time we see the name of Adam. The first time in the Bible, Genesis 2.20. He's been called the man, the man, but now he is called Adam. That's the first time for him. And then the first time for Eve is in chapter 3, verse 20. 320, now the man called his wife's name Eve. But Adam realizes none of them are suitable for him. None of them correspond to him. None of them are a proper partner to him. So then God produces another miracle. Verse 21, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. God caused it to happen. That means that Adam did not choose for that to happen. God made it happen to him. He made it happen to him, and he slept. What God caused to happen actually did happen. God was successful. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. He opened up his side, took one of his ribs, he closed it up, and then what did he do with the rib? 22, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God used the rib of the man to form a woman. He could have used the ground, just like he used the ground for Adam, but he chose not to do that. He chose to use a rib of Adam because he wanted there to be this unity and solidarity and connection between Adam and and every other human. That was God's ordained method. We are all in Adam. This comparison is made in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Romans 5, 12 to 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. That we are all in Adam. Everyone, every male and every female, we all have our origin in our head, our first father, Adam. He did it this way, on purpose. And it also will be a way for Adam to understand that she is not less than he. She is not less than he because she was taken from he, if I may spoil English. So, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. He, she was taken from him in order for him to realize that she is of value, of equal value to him. Not of equal 
rank and authority, but of equal value. And above, the two of them, above the animals and the rest of creation. So people are first, and then that we have animals and plants and rocks, everything else is under, in terms of value. Established here in Genesis. It also says that he um, brought her to the man. God brought Eve to the man. It wasn't Eve choosing to come to the man. It was God bringing Eve to the man to bring them together so that they might be taught and establish marriage. That they might establish marriage right there. Verse 23 And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here we have Adam reiterating this fact. After he awakes, he realizes what has happened. And he says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she is a part of me. We are a unity. He understands this. He announces it. As well, it's indicated both in the English terms, but also in the Hebrew terms. The English terms, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is, in English, we see the similarity in the spelling, right? Woman and man. In the Hebrew language, the term for woman is isha, and the term for man is ish. Ish and isha. Ish for man and isha for woman. Those terms signify our unity. Furthermore, verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For this cause, this reason, he establishes here that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and and they shall become one flesh. He's establishing here marriage where... The man leaves father and mother, establishes his own household with his wife, and remains, cleaves, sticks to his wife, because they become one flesh. And one flesh has to do with the the marital relationship and the union that takes place in marriage, and that that should be permanent. The marriage should be permanent. They are no longer two, but they are one until death. This is according to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, 3-12, that God's intention was for this to be until death. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. They had innocence. They did not have self-awareness of any shame and guilt. There was no sin. There was no culpability. They did not transgress the law of God when she was first created and brought to the man. Nothing like that existed. This innocence or this uh, being naked and not feeling ashamed, we might compare it to a small child. A very small child feels the same way. He he doesn't know that he's naked. He doesn't care that he's naked. There's no shame. He's very happy and content and innocent in his nakedness. Well, that's the way it was for Adam and Eve, though they were not little babies. They were both created with some maturity. We don't know what, what they looked like, what they, their age was 
whether they were they looked like they were 15 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old we don't know but they had some apparent age they had some maturity in their age they weren't infants but at that point they had innocence because they were naked and not ashamed a few points of clarification now a few points the the first one is in verse 15 you may have come across an interpretation it is an old Jewish interpretation one of the Jewish interpretations but it has been revived without due credit to the Jewish interpretation by a few modern scholars who say in verse 15 that when it says to cultivate it and keep it that that is not in reference to any kind of work but it's in reference to obeying God knowing God's word and obeying God in the garden that that's merely what it's talking about but I don't take that interpretation because for one it's not the natural way to take verse 15 number two when we compare this verb to cultivate with other texts in proximity to this it's talking about the ground it's not talking about the worship of God for example chapter 2 verse 5 2 5 says there was no man to cultivate the ground the object of cultivation is the ground in 2 verse 5 in chapter 3 verse 17 um, cursed is the ground because of you in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life and as well chapter 3 verse 23 therefore the lord god sent him out of the out from the garden of eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken chapter 4 verse 12 4 12 when you cultivate the ground it shall no longer yield its strength to you you shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and one more and that's chapter 5 verse 29 now he called his name noah saying this one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the lord has cursed it was the ground that they were supposed to work or toil over and cultivate cultivate without uh, toil some labor without sweat on the brows in Genesis 2.15. That's the way it was without sin in the world. After sin came into the world, they were to cultivate the ground with toil. In other words, 2.15 is talking about man being responsible for work. For work. Yes, we know he's supposed to worship, and that is plain from verses 16 and 17. He is to worship. Another point of clarification is there are some critics of the covenant of works who say that chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 actually do not even use the word covenant and do not even use the word works. Do not say covenant, do not say works. So there is no covenant of works. That's just a fiction invented by some theologians for their pet doctrines. Actually, no. You don't need the word covenant in a context for there to be a covenant. Right. There can be a covenant without having to announce this is a covenant. Sometimes the Bible does that, sometimes it doesn't. An example of the Bible not calling everything a covenant the first time we read about it is evident 
in chapter 2, 24, 24. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and, the, and they shall become one flesh. Is that a covenant? Is marriage a covenant? I think we would all say it's self-evident that marriage is a covenant. After all, all the preachers have told us that, right? When we got married, it, this was a covenant. So we, we believed it was a covenant. But does the Bible call marriage a covenant? It does not in this context, does it? The word covenant does not appear at all. However, Proverbs chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17. This is describing an adulterous woman. And it says in 2.17, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Forgets the covenant of her God, leaves the companion of her youth. Also, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Here, Malachi contends against the men who were divorcing their wives to marry pagan wives. And he says in 2.14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your wife by covenant. This establishes this fact that Genesis 2 does not use the word covenant for marriage, yet Proverbs 2.17 and Malachi 2.14 do use it for marriage. And we all acknowledge, it's plain and evident, that marriage is a covenant. Okay? But also, let's show further from Genesis 2.16 and 17. Genesis 2.16 and 17 is there not a commandment? Yeah. Commandments have expectations. They have obligations. If you obey the commandment, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. That happens in every covenant, even in the covenant of marriage. There is a blessing for obedience and there's a curse for disobedience. So we have the elements, the basic elements of a covenant right there in the context. Furthermore, turn in your Bibles to Hosea 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Hosea 6, 7. Hosea describes the rebellion of the people, and he says the following. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There, they have dealt treacherously against me. The people of Israel are behaving just like Adam, talking about Genesis chapter 3, in which... They transgress the covenant. Transgress the covenant. Adam transgressed the covenant, and the people of Israel transgressed the covenant. And it's described as treachery. They have dealt treacherously against me. Isn't that what we read in Malachi 2.14? When you breach the covenant, you are dealing with treachery. Treachery against the covenant and the people of the covenant and the God of the covenant. That's the language of Hosea 6, 7. Another example is Job 31, 33. Job 31, 33. He knows and reflects on what Adam did. Job 31, 33. He says, Have I covered my transgressions like Adam, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? 
You see what he says there about Adam? He says, he hasn't covered his transgressions like Adam. Adam did that in Genesis 3. And he hid his iniquity in his bosom. That is, he covered up his shame with the fig leaves, right? Adam did that. But Job is saying, I haven't done it. I haven't done it like that. So, Lord, vindicate me is his, his point. So, but notice he mentions Adam, but he also mentions transgression. And, of course, the actions of covering and hiding. Those are things that Adam did. That term, however, transgressions, that's similar to what we find in Genesis and in Malachi 2.14. But also, Proverbs 28 Proverbs 28, verse 13. 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Concealment. The language of Job 31, 33, and even Genesis chapter 3. Adam concealed his sins, and he concealed himself from God. Uh, Verse 13 says, his transgressions. Transgressions. Even in the case of Malachi, the men who were divorcing their wives and, and breaking the covenant, dealing treacherously with them, transgressing the covenant against their wives, they think that they can get away with it. But it takes Malachi to come on the scene and confront them and expose them for what they're doing because they think that they can get away with it. That's the nature of sin, that we hide and conceal our sin. But if we do that, we won't prosper. But if we confess and forsake, we find compassion. So I'm pointing out the term covenant is not there, but the idea of obedience and disobedience, obedience and transgression, iniquity, concealment, and punishment for that, dealing treacherously, they're all here in this context. All right, and then one more point I'd like to reiterate is when it says in chapter 2, verse 17, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. This death is not physical death only, and it's not spiritual death only. False interpreters have said that this is only physical death or it's only spiritual death, when actually it's talking about both. And that's why sometimes the Bible simply says death. It says death, not because we should take it as physical death or that we should take it as spiritual only, but we should take it in both ways. It is physical and spiritual. This means that in Genesis 3, when they first transgressed the covenant, They experienced spiritual death, spiritual alienation from God, and they deserved the wrath of God. It was imminently going to come upon them unless they repented, unless they confessed and uh, uh, had forsaken it in order to find compassion. That's what was on them. The physical death began at the time in terms of now they had mortality in their bodies. They had mortality in their bodies, and eventually they would die physically. We know God did not intend for them to die immediately in a physical sense because He wanted 
them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wanted them to have posterity. He says in verse chapter 2, verse 24, this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. He's assuming there that they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It would go on and on until God ended the world. Until he ended the world. So it's clear that he did not mean that they would immediately die in a physical sense. But they would eventually die because of their spiritual transgression against God. So physical death is one of the manifestations or outcomes of the spiritual death and alienation we have between us and God because of our sin. He means it in both ways. Let's see from other passages where the Bible also means it in the spiritual sense. And the first example is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. He has set before them life and prosperity, death and adversity. Life and death. Well, they already had life. They were living, they were listening to Moses preach, right? So what is this life and death he's talking about? It has to be spiritual. Again in 19, chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There we have it. To have longevity in the land, physical life, and also not to have the curse. Choose life in order that you may live. So that is spiritual life, like he meant in verse 15. When Moses is preaching, he wants his people to live in the land of Israel physically, but he also wants them to live spiritually, which is more important. Another example is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Timothy 5, 6. There he's dealing with uh, disobedient widows, young widows. And he says in 1 Timothy 5, 6, this disobedient young widow, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Okay, she lives physically, but she's dead spiritually, and she's manifesting her spiritual deadness by giving herself over to wanton pleasure. And also James 5, James 5, 19 and 20. James 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Their death is spiritual death. As well, since we're in James, James chapter 1, James 1, 15. 1, 15. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, 
it brings forth death. Brings forth death. And for that matter, talking about bodily death, James 2.26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. From Genesis 2 all the way throughout the Bible, there, these are the two aspects of death. There is the physical and the non-physical death. The bodily death and the spiritual death. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.